Why, hello there. You might want to pull up a chair. Let's have a chat today about tax havens. What I'm going to be doing, the subject of tax havens is a pretty big one, and I finally have it all unpacked to understand how it all works. But I will be getting back to the other aspects of how the elites hide money in different shelters and stuff. But for right now, I'm going to just unpack the tax havens. And here's the reason why. Because this identifies people who have stolen your tax dollars and parked them in offshore accounts. Now, why would I say they've stolen money to park them in outside accounts? Well, why would they be parking money in outside accounts, right? If they're not hiding it, right? The purpose of a tax haven is to hide money. Tax havens exist in a legal gray area in that many of the activities associated with them are legal, but many are not. For example, using a tax haven to store funds earned overseas, thereby avoiding paying higher taxes in one's home country is legal. See, it's, it's, it's really a shell game, okay? Just think about it that way, right? Like you could go earn money in some country, get them to, like if you have a high tax rate in your country, then you get your friends to pay you at a lower tax rate. They're just a, it's really, and you'll understand more when I get back to the wealth hiding that they do. It, it's really, it, it's nothing but a, a Ponzi scheme, okay? And it's driven by lawyers and greedy people who, they come up with these taxes and it's a cat and mouse game between them and the IRS because they go off and do all these things. And that's way too much for me to try to explain today. <laughs> this whole country is a criminal activity. So first, what I'd like to do is explore the criminal activity by the psychopaths, the elites, and where they've been parking money all over. Because obviously, the money they get comes from our tax dollars. We're all set on that deal, right? They would have nothing without us. So their entire goal is to steal, cheat, and then hide what they're doing, right? So, um, so this went on to say, um, on the other hand, using a tax haven to hide earnings entirely or to launder money earned through illegal means is not legal. <laughs> Although the definition of what exactly counts as a tax haven differs from source to source, modern tax havens typically adhere to guidelines set out by regulatory bodies. <laughs> such as the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, and <laughs> the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Boy, I'm glad they're in charge. Modern corporate tax havens have high levels of OECD compliance and establish bilateral tax treaties, so what this, which are legal agreements between two countries that reduce the rate of taxation for businesses located in one country but earning money in another. Many tax havens have the ability to legally enable tax treaties close to zero by using base erosion and profit sharing. And I'll, when I get into the rest of this stuff, the rest of the stuff they're doing, <laughs> they've got this whole scheme of leasing sewages, they're actually leasing sewages in Germany to create money shield. I'll get back to that. But so, um, I thought if we could put a face to the crooks, okay, because they're robbing you. They're robbing your family's ability to have a roof over your head and food on your table, okay? So I think that we should focus on calling them out today. Okay, the most, the world's most renowned tax havens. British Virgin Islands, considered by many to be the world's leading tax haven. The British colony's econo economy holds more than 5,000 times, <laughs> 5,000 I'll try not to laugh, 5,000 times its worth in foreign investments. Local officials claim the country is not a tax haven, but this argument is undermined by the fact that the BVI, or British Virgin Islands, has a mere 36,000 residents, but is the listed home of more than 400,000 companies and holds approximately 1.5 trillion in assets. <laughs> Luxembourg, one of the world's richest countries, 
Luxembourg is also one of the world's leading tax havens. According to a report from Citizens for Tax Justice and U.S. PIRG Education Fund, approximately 30% of U.S. Fortune 500 companies have subsidiaries in Luxembourg. (laughs) For example, web retailer Amazon.com Com. You really start to get complicated with words. <laughs> well, they do have a phallic symbol on their logo, don't they? <laughs> we can all agree on that. <laughs> Amazon.com funnels all of its sales in Europe through its official European headquarters in Luxembourg. Take advantage, of course, of that tax rate, right? What they do is they become... They go out and pitch these countries because I remember years ago, Ireland was pitching all these countries to come over and do business in Ireland to escape taxes. So, Cayman Islands. The Cayman Islands recently held banking acts assets equal to one fifth of the world's thirty trillion in local banking assets. In addition, in addition to having no corporate tax, the Cayman Islands impose no direct taxes on residents, including property, income, and payroll taxes. The Caymans are especially popular with hedge fund managers because the corporate and income tax rates are 0%, even on interest or dividends earned on an investment. The Caymans are home to subsidiaries of Fortune 500 companies such as Pepsi, Marriott, and Wells Fargo. Bermuda. Most consumers know this UK island territory for, oh, and also before I, in case I forget, the UK and the United States are two of the oldest currencies. Now ask yourself, why is that? Because they've been holding on a little bit tighter. But anyway, just, just a little bit of trivia. And I had the dates, but I think, so the US and Britain, amazingly, are the two holders of the longest currency, right? Okay, well, we'll see how this is going to work out with the U.S. dollar any day now. (laughs) Okay, so Bermuda. Most consumers know this U.K. island territory for its tourist-friendly beaches, but those in the financial sector may also know it as a notoriously popular tax haven. Bermuda's gross domestic product per capita is abnormally high thanks to its lack of taxes on corporate income, interest, dividends, and royalties. These tax rates have included companies such as Google and Nike to park billions of dollars in accounts in Bermuda, thereby avoiding U.S. taxes. And keep in mind, these are all the people that everybody admires, right? (laughs) All their favorite people running these big companies like Nike and Apple are just total crooks, right? (laughs) So you have to set aside your own personal feelings about things and take a sharper eye look at things because we may all agree that Apple may have come up with a lot of interesting products, okay? But does that allow them to be out-and-out crooks? (laughs) Okay. Switzerland is known worldwide by the secrecy of its banking sector, which holds the details of its clients' financial accounts and details in strict confidence. This trustworthiness, and the the Swiss have been very sly on all of this, if I might add, because they set up this whole um, secrecy and trust the Swiss deal. I think they did a marvelous job of this because it is embedded in everybody's minds that trust the Swiss, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what people thought when they were get, when they were hearing about World War II coming their way was trust the Swiss, right? And that enabled people to literally, I mean, I can't even remember how many truckloads of valuables got shipped out of Germany to Switzerland because everybody trusted the Swiss. Well, we all know how that ended up. So yeah, so the I, I think it was actually quite smart the way they set up this trust the Swiss thing from the very beginning because I, of course, also trusted the Swiss, right? <laughs> so, and this is the one none of you are likely expecting to be on this most popular list of tax havens, the United States. Not a tax haven to the same degree as the other countries listed. The United States offers a unique tax scenario thanks to the fact 
thanks to the fact that each state sets its own income tax rates. As such, states with no income tax, such as Alaska, Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Washington, and Wyoming. Now, this do your own research because this list could be from a couple of years ago, but I think you get the idea can often be utilized as tax havens by countries wishing to minimize their tax burdens. So countries who feel that the United States is, let's say, a safer bet these days, because I think they did a better job of selling the United States. Well, they did an equal job, okay. The Swiss got the first prize for the award for ship us all your money, it's safer, okay. But then along came the United States, right? So I believe a lot of... Um, underdeveloped countries and whatnot, or however they classify them, would probably perceive that if they ship their hidden money from their, that they stole from their company, a safer place to be would be the United States tax havens. Now, I'm just guessing there. I don't know any people, so I'm just guessing there. But you have to use a little bit of logic, okay? The anonymity of offshore shell companies can also be used to circumvent international sanctions. And more than, th this was this big legal firm they caught in Panama, and they had um, what they're allegating is that criminals, of course, criminals can hide things in <laughs> foreign countries, right? So it's kind of interesting in this Panama paper thing, it's like they're kind of calling out the different criminal groups as different, right, and how they're wording these things, right? So um, let me see here. So... Um, the um, first we'll talk about the Panama Papers because I have lists of the elites who got caught in both of these things. Now, I would like to remind you that I am not saying that I trust or believe the people that caught these people, right? It's, it's a big, it's a big DC-based, Washington DC-based investigative journal group who put all this together. So, at this point, I don't really trust anybody until I would dig into it really deeply. So do I trust these people? Not particularly. And I think none of us, should, we should stop trusting all these people until verified, right? So my opening statement is this, is that one group of investigative reporters landed on the original Panama Papers, okay? Then that same group of paper, the same group, that same group of international investigative journalists then landed on the Pandora. So there's two groups, the Panama and the Pandora. See how they're both starting with Pan, right? <laughs> so Panama papers took place in Panama, okay, through a crooked law firm there. This, this, I'm just giving you the summary. Panama papers were leaked out of Panama. And um, they were leaked beginning on April the 3rd, 2016, okay, the papers detail financial and attorney-client information for more than 216,000 offshore entities. The documents, some dating back to the 70s, were created by and taken from former Panamanian offshore law firm and corporate service provider, this group called Mozak Fonseca. You'll see that name a lot, okay? Mozak, M-O-S-S-A-C-K, Fonesca, F-O-N-E-S-C-A, and compiled with similar, similar leaks into a searchable database. So that was a Panama Papers, April the 3rd, this release started 2016, okay? And the document contained personal financial information about wealthy individuals and public officials that had been previously kept private. The publication of these documents made it possible to establish this person named Jan, who's still a person of interest to a number of European governments, <laughs> to his, oh God, <laughs> what they're saying is they're most interested in the Russian crook. <laughs> so they say it made possible to establish, so, so by publishing these papers, they were able to prosecute this person named Jan Marcellic, I guess an abstentia, right? who is still a person of interest to a number of European governments <laughs> due to his revealed links with Russian intelligence and international financial fraudsters David and Josh Bava, B-A-A-Z-O-Y. 
Well, so yeah, so that's who they think uh, they want to focus on, right? The Russians, right? Okay, so uh, here's pretty much the list. And I'm gonna, what I'm going to be doing is all you need to do, you don't need to be jotting down notes or anything, just do a search for list of people named in the Panama Papers, okay? And the first group is government officials, heads of state, um, UAE president, I can't even pronounce his name, but you know who I'm talking about, Khalifa bin Zayed al-Naha. <laughs> okay, former heads of state, oh, I, I should have not looked under his picture, the guy from UAE, United Arab Emirates, is Salman of Saudi Arabia, King of Saudi Arabia. Okay, so King of Saudi Arabia is hiding money over there, okay. Um, former heads of state, former Argentine president, Mauricio Macri, M-A-C-R-I, president of Argentina. Is this where they hide their goodbye money? <laughs> okay, Petro Poroshki, former president of Ukraine, president of the United Arab Emirates, that Khalif, it's a bunch of Khalif people, I can't even pronounce it, uh, former Emir of Qatar, is listed as owner of this other group. Former president of Sudan, who was president from 1986 to 1989, heads of government, uh, prime minister of Australia, Malcolm Tumble, uh, former prime minister of Iceland, Sigmor David Gunslag, Silvio Berlusconi, Prime Minister of Italy. Ivanchki, former Prime Minister of Georgia. Pavio, former Prime Minister of Ukraine. Ion Stutska, former Prime Minister of Moldova. Ayada Awali, former Acting Prime Minister of Iraq. These look like payment packages if you ask me, but just keep in mind. I am only guessing, right? So, thank you, thank you for yourself. <laughs> Ali Abuaga. I can't help but make some fun of their names now. Okay, you can go look at the list. I'm not being disrespectful, so don't tell me I'm being disrespectful. I, I could care less how to pronounce their names. <laughs> okay. Um, Ali Abuaga, former Prime Minister of Jordan. Benzadi Bhutto, former Prime Minister of Pakistan and a member of the Bhutto family. That's a really crooked operation. And as I recall from the last couple of days, Pakistan is about starving to death right now. So your friends in Pakistan need to realize that their former prime ministers have stashed a ton of money around. Another one, Nawaz Sharif, former prime minister of Pakistan. There's a whole list of Pakistani people, but Harnad Ben Jasmine, former prime minister of Qatar. And the guy from Algeria, Aldora, Angola. <laughs> Argentina has a huge list of them. Australia, we have Nevin Ran, W-R-A-N. And Australia is treating its people like total dirtbags right now. So that's where the money went. Botswana, Brazil, Cambodia. Now this really grinds me. Cambodia, Minister of Justice, took off with a bunch of money over there. Chile, Intelligence Agency Associates. Does this list start to sound to you like a payola list? This, this country is modeled after the um, mafia, okay? If you can think of any reason how the whole structure of the payouts, the different NGOs, all the different little sneaky contracts, <laughs> this is just mafia. Their entire business plan is mafia-style operation. Chile, um, Dom Dominic Democratic... Republic of the Congo, somebody from the member of the National Assembly, Republic of the Congo, Ecuador, France, uh, I got to kind of scan through some of these uh, because there's just so many of them, uh, Greece, this person, Stavros, advisor of former Prime Minister Kostas. See how they get to be advisors and stuff, or their agents? <laughs> I don't know. It looks like payoff to me, but I don't know. I'm just guessing. 
they have to steal the money, and then once you steal all the taxpayer funds in all these countries, and I'm just guessing, right? I suspect you have a group of people that you have some mafia-like ambition to repay, right? So this list of people would undoubtedly be hiding those assets somewhere because it would look kind of bad in their own country, particularly right now when people are being kicked out of their homes, they have nothing to live for, and I don't know. <laughs> I'd be cautious living in the palace right now. So anyway, so Greece, the advisor. Um, oh, and then we get into Iceland, kind of a quiet little crooked company over there. The wife of the first lady of Iceland. She has links to offshore accounts. Minister of Finance in Iceland. Boy, Iceland's got a lot of people. Okay, let's get to India here. India, member of the parliament of the Raji Sabha. And there's a couple more here. Israel, Minister of Construction. Hmm. Former advisor to, <laughs> former advisor to Ariel Sharon. Italy. Former member of the Senate. Kenya. Deputy Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Lebanon. Education Minister. Second Vice Governor of the Central Bank. Hmm. Executive Director and Head of the Central Bank Governor's Executive Office. Malta. Our old friends at Malta. Energy Minister and Health. See, there's, there's a lot of money in these areas that nobody's paying particular interest to, right? Because um, when you look at the health budgets and the scam that gets committed under health, so if you're doing further research down the road here when I've left off this place, when I get off this game board, you might consider focusing also on the health people, okay? The energy and the health people would be, if I was to come up with a list right now, which I'm not, um, those would be the biggest crooks in every country that I would look for. Okay, Netherlands. Current Deputy Prime Minister and former Minister of Finance. New Zealand, our buddies over there, another first world country. Legal advice. <laughs> Ken Whitney, legal advisor of Prime Minister of New Zealand, John Key. Nigeria, former Vice President, Governor of Delta State. Former ruler of life, and what that means, I don't know. Uh, somebody named Abus Aya. North Korea. Bank representative and presumed high official. <laughs> they always act like they don't know what's going on in North Korea. That must be kind of a fun tactic because you can act like, well, we don't really know what's going on over there. So it really opens up the game board to stories you can then create, right? Um, okay. Pakistan. It seemed like I was reading Pakistan a little bit ago. Uh, Palestine. Minister of National Economy. Former Mayor of Hebron. Panama. Former Chair of the State-Owned Savings Bank. President of Panamista Party. Co-founder of this Mossack Forenska law firm, which from which the Panama Papers were hacked. Peru, National Intelligence Service Director. Philippines, uh, somebody, I don't know, governor somebody, I don't know. Poland, Mayor of Warsaw. Rwanda, Rwanda, Rwanda. Saudi Arabia, Crown, Fence, Crown Prince Minister. Muhammad bin Fahed, Governor of Eastern Province. There's a really long list under Spain for some suspicious reason, right? With their yellow and red flag. Um, long list. I'll just kind of skim through it. Minister of Industry, Energy, and Tourism. Former Vice President of the Government of Spain. <laughs> Former President of the Community of Madrid. Retired Senator of Spain. Former Member of Senate of State, Congress, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, this other person, Theory, Consul at Zambia. Huh, what does Spain have to do with the Zambia? Okay, United Kingdom, retired member of the House of Lords, Michael Ashcroft. 
Tony Baldry, former member of the House of Commons. Now, just because they say this is a complete list, I'm not agreeing it's a complete list. I mean, for all we know, the so-called leak could have just had a select group of people, right? <laughs> so, you always have to consider all the options when you start reading through these lists and things, right? The lists are part of the deception, right? I would imagine certain people are kept on or off these lists. Just guessing here. Um, where did I leave off with? What crook was that? Michael Mates, former member of the House of Commons. Pamela Sharples, member of the House of Lords. United States, Gabriel Flatkoff, director of the New York Office of Strategic Partnerships in the administration of Mayor Bill de Blasio and a former finance director of the 2000 U.S. <laughs> Senate campaign for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Have you also noticed how they call our president's wives first ladies? I think it's all housed to do with all this royal terminology, right? So first lady Hillary Clinton, because they're all royal actors. It's right here in front of us. Uruguay. So, yeah, so of course the um, person that was in charge of the Office of Strategic Partnerships, <laughs> that would mean setting up deals with other countries is how I'm reading that. But, hey, I don't know. Go look for yourself. Maybe this is all just completely legitimate. Uruguay, former Minister of Industry, Senator and former Minister of Tourism, Business and Director of This and That, um, Technology Laboratory of Uruguay, Venezuela, former commander-in-chief of the army. <laughs> that looks like a payoff to me. Um, Jesus Villanueva, former director of PSVSA. And remember, I am just spouting off here, okay? I am guessing, simply guessing. <laughs> if you think I'm wrong in suspecting the former commander-in-chief of the army might be hiding <laughs> money in a tax haven for some nefarious reason, then by all means, we could also look into this a lot more closely. So... Right now, I'm going to go on the assumption that these people are nothing but dirty criminals. <laughs> but however you choose to word all this, is certainly up to you. Okay, Zambia, former ambassador to the United States. See, everything looks like payola to me. And I don't know, I'm just, maybe, maybe I'm just too suspicious. Maybe the years have gotten to me. <laughs> Argentina, aide to former presidents, wife of member of the chamber, Former minister, former minister of planning and public investment. See all these all these words <laughs> seem to be consistent here. Azerbaijan, the family of the president, President Ilham Aliyev, A L I Y E V, and it's it's the families or people who appear to be to be getting paid off. But keep in mind, I'm just guessing. Brazil, uh, potential briber of the former president. Oh, yeah, they like to call some of them criminals. Okay, Canada, Anthony Merchant, husband of Senator Panna Merchant. China, Chen, Chen Dongxi, grandson-in-law of former chairman Mao Zedong. There's a whole list of Chinese people here. Uh, Deng, Deng Zhao brother-in-law of paramount leader and general secretary Xi Jinping. Patrick Henry Devlers, French business associate of Gui Khan, convicted murder and wife of former Minister of Commerce and member of Poluto Boyan. And then the daughter of these people, um, I don't know. It looks either like, and you'll have to determine for yourself. I'm sharing my work so people would further their own thinking about this stuff and not just take my opinion because, um, I don't know. I got a guy in Egypt, some of former president, Ecuador, um, director of the, former advisor to director of the National Intelligence Secretary, France, business associate, leader of the front, National Front, former law per partner of Pres President Nicolas Sarkozy, um, accounting associate of Marie Le Pen, leader of the National Front, another one who was former leader of the National Front and father of current party leader Marine Le Pen, um, 
Isabel Bacchini. Uh, the popular one are the, the wives, too. And then in Ghana, we have son of former president, John Kufo. Guinea, widow of former president, Conte, Honduras. Ireland. Political consultant and former director of organizations and strategies. See, they all seem to be in positions of kind of like where they could possibly do something for people, right? For the right, wink, wink. Um, Israel, son of Rabbi, Rabbi David, blah, 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 and great-grandson of Baba Salih and head of the calorie resources. Italy, convicted of bribe alongside former Senator Marcetto. Silvio Sacchi, former judge of Naples, along with his partner Fabo and his accountant. Brothers Stefano, uh, Italian businessman Stefano, former advisor to Silvio Berluschi. Italian accountant appointed by Silvio Berluschi. They're Italians, um, quite, a, quite a good good group there. Uh, and it also kind of appears to me like it has some sort of payoff for political alliances. But hey, here again, maybe I'm just suspicious. Okay, India. Uh, son-in-law of Cabinet Minister and business person. Son of former Attorney General. Former solicitor general and son. Yeah, a lot of them. Ivory Coast. Associate of former president. Kazakhstan. Grandson. <laughs> Lebanon. Speak daughter of Speaker of the Parliament, second cousin of member of the Parliament. Oh, this is I, I thought I'm reading the same list. I'm reading from the same countries, but I had done a scan for um, run by relatives. I found a list of countries that were found in these countries hiding money that were relatives of the people. Um, so this one is. Um, no, wait a minute. That's not what I'm saying. I'll have to think about it. Let me keep reading the list. Um, this is the correct list, though, okay? <laughs> so I do know that. So. Okay, so daughter of Speaker Lebanon, daughter of Speaker of the Parliament, second cousin, a member of the Parliament. And the reason I'm going through some of these levels of daughter, cousin, is for you to be aware that if a royal elite is in charge of a country... Or really anything. There's all this talk recently about nepo babies, meaning nepotism, family-related business deals, right? And um, a lot, this whole structure of how the elites have set up their businesses and all that is basically using the nepo system, right? Because who more can you trust than your own transgender children and relatives, right? Now, I'm not saying they all trust each other explicitly because that wouldn't go along with being a psychopath, but somehow they have found a way to function as a group of crooks, right? Um, so, yeah, so that's why I think we're seeing so many of these relatives because this is an inherited kind of a thing because once you got into that group, you stay in that group and you identify in that group by your colleges you go to. All the things that you do put you into this particular group of elites, right? And has anybody ever heard themselves objected to being called elites? No, I think they came up with the name elites. I'll have to look again, but <laughs> they call themselves the elites. So I think we can pretty much accept the fact that they are the people at the top, right? And this is particularly how they handle the money they steal from tax, <laughs> from, tax from companies. Kazakhstan, grandson of the president. Lebanon, daughter of the speaker. Uh, Madagascar, um, advisor to the president, son of prime minister, Malaysia, son of the prime ministers there, Mexico, personal secretary, government official, Pakistan, nephew of Bhutto, widow of former governor of state, close relative of president of Pakistan, prime minister. You know, it. it's like it has this, this one person, just as an example, Marianne Nawaz, W-N-A-W-A-Z. Um, and the, there's a whole list of them, and they are all the children of Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif. So and they're on this list, right? 
So do they also use their own children to launder money and stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> of course they would because they groom the children to be young criminals like themselves, right? These are nothing more than mafia people dressed in fancy suits and stealing and figuring out a way to trick and hide what they've stolen. Pretty simple. Palestine, Paraguay, son of the ex-minister, son-in-law of a former prime minister, um, Philippines, youngest daughter. So what I'm saying is this. If you're in a country and this person in charge has children, all of the children should be on your radar, okay? Your head should be on a swivel for all these people because they all connect. And what I'm trying to show you now is how they connect, okay? And this is how they connect through this particular part of their crime, right? So if you're ever in doubt, because people may like certain ones of these people, right? Because they put the most charming ones in front of us. So, yeah, Russia. So if you're thinking that um, Russia has friend of president, friend of president, friend of president, Saudi Arabia, um, son, member of the royal family, friend of this, himself, the son of former president, blah, 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 blah. So what I'm saying is if you're confused about what anybody's role is, keep in mind they all belong to this particular group, the elites, right? We are not part of that group. We are the the people they use to rob to become that part of the group, right? So let's always keep that straight. Spanish has a huge, Spain has a huge bunch of relatives, sister of former Juan Carlos, son of so-so, former Duke, blah, 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 husband of so-and-so, daughter of former king businesswoman who had loving relationships with former king <laughs> current former wife former wife agent of the spanish secret service spain has them all okay syria cousins of president bashar al-assad <laughs> taiwan older brother of president of taiwan so i think you get my point here and i'll read you the uk people okay uk we had Sarah, Duchess of York, for former wife, wife of Prince Andrew. Ian Cameron, father of Prime Minister David Cameron. I guess he shifted some money up to dad, right? David Sharples, son of Baroness Pamela Sharples. Mark Thatcher, son of former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. United Nations. This just shows you the crookedness goes through the entire map. So, you know, I find myself, I used to find myself, I guess, at sometimes thinking, gee, that really, that person can't really be involved in all this, can they be? Well, the writing is on the wall, kids. <laughs> They're all involved, okay? Okay, United Nations. Interesting one. Kojo Annan, son of former Secretary General Kofi Annan. And then there's all kinds of non-government ones, the International Federation of Association of Football. We all know that sports are all transgendered. They're all big money games, and it's, it's a big racket. There's a huge list of sports players, football players, because they, of course, don't want to pay taxes in your country. Now, why would they if they can hide it somewhere? So they themselves grab in huge piles of cash that never enters into your government systems. So it puts more and more burden on the taxpayer. What they do has, maybe I read it, maybe I didn't. Every dollar that they declare in taxes, we make up for 74 cents of every dollar of that, okay, in services. That's how, that's how high the theft rate is, okay? And it is extraordinarily high in places like Africa, places where people are, Listen, I don't want to focus on people in Africa getting bought off because everyone in the world has been bought off at this point. So we've got all these dark-skinned countries who seem to think the United States is actually a real country. Um, well, the United States, people don't even have their real names. And do these, do these other countries, are they run by people that we even understand what their names are? <laughs> Too difficult for right now. But, yeah, if we don't even know Donald Trump's names, <laughs> I don't know, would you want to do business with somebody who didn't have a clue what their name was? Uh Canada has a bunch of them. Um, France. France has a bunch of them. And they always want to put the one that they think will accept in front of us. Um, 
India, a lot of relatives in India, Israel, lots of relatives there, Italy, a ton of people in Italy, um, Pakistan, look into Pakistan, Pakistan is starving right now, and the money flowing out of Pakistan uh, appears like insane to me, okay, and that's all I'm going to say about it, because I certainly don't have the time to dig into every bit of it, um, you know, Taiwan, older brother, president of Taiwan. Yeah, it's just insane that they're all either relatives or appear to be some sort of payoff. But remember, I'm just guessing. So if I think any differently later, I will certainly bring it up. <laughs> but as of right now, you know, they even have the first swoop of the Panama Papers. They had organized crime people, Guatemalan drug trafficker, um, head of the partner of Chapo, <laughs> Mexican drug trafficker, one of the founders, um, Guadalajara cartel, right-hand man of India's most wanted criminal, um, Gordon Perry, property dealer who was laundering money from the Brinks Matt robbery through a company called Fabrian. Well, I, you know, why do they call out these drug lords? Because uh, there's probably just different tiers of drug lords, right? And I think we all kind of understand who's the top drug lord, so I, we don't need to get into all that. So, okay, let's get to the Pandora Papers. So, the first batch um, was called the Panama Papers, okay? That specifically came out of a legal office in Panama, okay? So, for some reason unknown to me, there was another group a people named in Pandora Papers as shareholders, directors, and beneficiaries of offshore companies. So at first I kind of had flipped in the words and I thought they were both the same, but it's Panama was the first one. So now we're going to be talking about Pandora. So this group of people, these investigative journalists, also got their hands on leaks from Pandora Papers, okay, and Pandora Papers, um, 35 current and former national leaders appear in the leaked documents alongside 400 officials from nearly 100 countries, more than 100 billionaires, 29,000 offshore accounts, 30 current and former leaders, 300 public officials, were named in the first leaks in October 2021. So Pandora was um, last year, right? And they went on to say an estimated 32 trillion may be hidden from being taxed according to reports. But you know what these reports don't indicate is where do these people get all their money from, right? Well, they're hiding money so they don't get taxed, but yet they essentially stole that money by hiding tax dollars. See what I mean? <laughs> they got every trick figured out. Okay, so um, the, the, you, well, all you have to look for is this, this keywords: List of people named in the Panad Pandora Papers, okay? And they also like that PP. That's a satanic thing. So PP and if you do two P's back to back, it forms a butterfly. So that's why they give themselves P names. <laughs> so, yeah, and also they like that pan. So, I don't know. It, it seems like it's the actions of pan, their devil god, right, in investigating this stuff. I still haven't figured out exactly why they're leaking this stuff, but th that may appear in my brain later. But for now, let's focus on the list, okay? So, heads of state. In Pandora Papers, okay, President of Ajiban, President of Chile, President of the Republic of the Congo, President of Cyprus, President of the Dominican Republic, President of Ecuador, President of Gabon, King of Jordan, President of Kenya, President of Montenegro, Emir of Qatar, President of Ukraine, who the U.S. just sent billions of dollars. So. 
basically how I look at this all is this is all a city of London operation, right? Just kind of put that into our heads. This is all, all the money from all these different things flow into the city of London, right? So this is probably some sort of parking ground or something. Don't know that answer. But anyway, so, um, yeah, Ukraine. Um, yeah. Who they, they took U.S. tax dollars. So I believe the origin of all of these funds are tax dollars stolen from these countries, okay, in an effort to hide assets and gain over other people in a very criminal manner, if you ask me. Former heads of state, former president of Colombia, former president of Colombia, why did I call him a... Um, president, former president of El Salvador, former president of Honduras, former president of Panama, former president of Paraguay, former president of Peru, current heads of government at the time of this release. And keep in mind, this is only from about a year ago, right? And right now we're in the worst financial crisis, and I won't get started on it, I promise, but People are literally being starved to death all over the world, okay? Okay. Okay, did I read that? Yeah, okay. Um, current heads of government at the time of the release. Prime Minister of the Ivory Coast. Prime Minister of Lebanon. Prime Minister of the United Arab em Emirates. Emir of Dubai. Former heads of government. Prime Minister of Czech Republic, Prime Minister of Bahrain, Prime Minister of Georgia, former Prime Minister of Haiti. These are all countries that are getting the crap beat out of them right now with lack of access to clean water and clean food. Okay, just focus on that part. Chief Executive of Hong Kong, Chief Executive, Prime Minister of Jordan, Prime Minister of Lebanon, Prime Minister of Mongolia, Prime Minister of Mozambique. Tony Blair, Prime Minister of the UK. Heads of organizations, former managing director of the International Monetary Fund, head of security service of Ukraine. Ministers, Secretary of Communication and Transport, uh, it looks like Mexico. I'm, I'm having to read the flags, so I'm trying to see how well I remember everybody's flags. Former Deputy Finance Minister of Russia, uh, oh, this is France, it looks like. And, and verify these for yourself, because leader of the Christian Democratic Appeal. Pakistan, finance minister. That you should thank for your lack of any water or food right now. Minister for water resources. Now, why are they parking money if it wasn't to keep dirty water going, right? See, what happens is, is that to fund these projects, money flows, right? And it flows into the hands of the crooks, and the biggest crooks need places to store their money, right? But they do that on the basis of the most harm, right? So what they do is they tell the taxpayers, hey, we're going to get you clean water, right? So why don't you approve this ballot for clean water and approve us to spend, like, I don't know, $2 billion, okay? Well, then they rob 80-90% of that $2 billion. So nothing, once people get tricked into thinking they want clean water and that these people are going to deliver it, well, they never get what they promised, right? So then they leave that office and they move, you know, you know, they get their final paycheck for their act and all of this. And I don't know how to think about anything, but it looks like a mafia. Okay, Minister of the, um, Ministers. I can't read all those mouths, but we got a bunch of uh, Minister for Water in Pakistan, former Minister for Interior in Pakistan, uh, former Permanent Secretary of Zambia, Jonathan Aiken, former Chief Secretary to the Treasury. I wonder what that's about. Uh, former Minister of Economy. Finance and Affairs of Malta. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just saying that it looks to me like a lot of money's gotten looted out. Um, 
So what I'm going to be doing is this, is, um, and there's also a list of bankers who park money in these places. Um, so um, I think that from this, I would sincerely hope that you would explore the rest of this list on your own because it's a big one, okay? And um, it's how we learn to train ourselves to identify what their group is, right? And I can tell you that this is their group, okay? This is the group that they run with, okay? I doubt, seriously, that any of us could go to any of these countries and set up any kind of offshore account, okay? <laughs> I don't think that would happen. <laughs> um, so, anyhow, uh, what I'm going to be playing after this show is this. Um, you know, I've been talking a lot about um, children locked alone in their rooms. And... Um, I found something that explains a lot of this fragility in children these days um, because we all were raised in very different types of generations and I ran across this man who was talking about the children of the generation that I've been talking about who have been grown up with devices okay and yeah and that's created all this fragility so it, it to me it's a very interesting concept because I see these kids all over social media and I do hear from some of these kids, and um, yeah, they have they, they, they have this pride in, in, in not having good mental health, and um, um, they exp I just find it amazing because they explore what kind of they, they get in chat rooms and talk about what kind of pills to take, and all of this is very foreign to me as somebody who has grown up in the boomer generation because we were basically what they call the free-range generation. I mean, we left the house in the morning and somehow we knew when it was time to show up for dinner, right? Um, yeah, we hopped on buses. In Spain, I hopped on a bus and went into Madrid with myself and my little friend at nine years old. So yeah, we, we, uh, we had a million liberties, right? We absolutely, at least at my house, we didn't sit around and watch TV. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, so I'd, li I'd like for you to listen to this clip because it really explains well how we got this, um, what appears to be a very fragile group of people. And I have, I've explored these groups in a lot of different ways over the years that I wouldn't have necessarily talked about because these groups have all their own dynamics, okay? They have their little gossip groups, they have their channels that are about this and channels that are about that. Uh, but the ones who are into all this medical stuff, I'm just fascinated by them because, I don't know, we were just out doing stuff, okay? And, I, and I'm not saying that, yeah, we were a great generation. We were as screwed up as anybody else because we're raised in a trauma-based society, right? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah, so, um, anyway, so we were raised in, a, everybody was raised in a trauma-based society. That's just the basic bottom line, so. Let's just take a look at um, what this man has to say about <clears throat> this generation who were raised with the um, phones and stuff, okay? And instead of me trying to look for it now, what we'll do is, oh, here, here's what it's called. And it was just recently, and I found it fascinating, okay? And one thing I'd like to remind you of, I did that show about true crime being fake. And one thing that I talked about in that show was in my generation, they tried to scare our parents with the milk carton kids, okay? They had these abducted kids that they showed up on milk cartons. And um, it was to get our parents to start thinking that we were gonna be snatched any minute. Well, somehow, luckily my mom and dad didn't pick up on the milk carton kids. <laughs> they didn't try to um, restrict our behavior thinking we were going to get stolen <laughs> because otherwise they wouldn't have allowed when we rode on buses in Spain on our own at nine years old they had full knowledge of where we were going we weren't crawling out of our windows or anything that was kind of the next generation but anyway so what I'd like you to do is just listen to this clip about the fragility okay and I'm going to plug it in right now I actually have the speaker here because I found it fascinating and it answered a lot of questions for me. And it's pretty sad what they did to that generation because what it really, and this is just my view, okay? 
it set them up to be pill-taking people who want to relieve all their anxieties with pills and drugs and stuff. It put them into isolation in their rooms and stuff like that. So it just really created a different kind of a society, right? And keep in mind that during this time, they've also been created a inner society of these kids, which would be the kids who are showing up with autism, right? You know, that they're getting from the chemicals, the vaccines, and all of that. I did a show about autism and all that. Just look for it in the title. But So you got a generation of kids who are being raised to be fragile. We've got a generation of kids who were raised um, being autistic because of abusive of medical treatment. So, yeah, it makes up a very interesting dynamic. So I just wanted to document what this man had to say because I found it so interesting how it put the pieces of all of this together. And um, it's something that I've talked to you about in a million different ways. So let's listen to this. And the show is called Why Modern America Creates Fragile Children. First interpretations, look for coming along. But at the same time, there's a very sharp change with kids who were born in 1995 and afterwards, surprisingly sharp. Beginning with kids born in 1995, they spend a lot less time going out with friends, they don't get a driver's license as often, they don't drink as much, they don't go out on dates, they don't work for money as much. What are they doing? They're spending a lot more time sitting on their beds with their devices, interacting that way. These are the first kids who got social media when they were 13, roughly. They were subjected to much more anti-bullying content in their schools, much more adult supervision, they were raised in the years after 9-11. They were given much less recess and free play with no child left behind. There was much more testing pushed down into earlier grades. So in a lot of ways, Gen Z has been denied the independence, the independent play that previous generations got. Gen Z is, has been raised with what's called moral dependency. There's always been an adult there for them to go to, and so we don't know if this is for sure the reason, but they seem to have more difficulty working out problems on their own. When we protect children from unpleasantness, from conflicts, from insults, from teasing, from exclusion, we are setting them up to be weak, to be more easily damaged, to be more easily discouraged. In the 1990s, as the crime rate was plummeting, as American life was getting safer and safer, Americans freaked out and thought that if they take their eyes off their children, the children will be abducted. The fear was stoked by cable TV in the 1980s. There were a few high-profile abductions. Last year, 50,000 children disappeared, many of them from nice, safe neighborhoods. It's okay. Come on, help me Talk out. to your children about not talking to strangers and do it today. But it's not until the 1990s that we really start locking kids up and saying, you cannot be outside until you're 14 or 15. Lenore Skenazy, who wrote the book Free Range Kids, she became famous as America's worst mom because in 2009, she let her nine-year-old son ride the New York City subway. Not only did he survive, he was thrilled. He felt he'd learned something. He felt he could go out into the world. We took this essential period of childhood from about eight to 12, when kids throughout history have practiced independence, have gotten into adventures, have made rafts and floated down the Mississippi River. We took that period and said, you don't get to practice independence until it's too late, until that period is over. Now, a couple years before you go to college, now you can go outside, oh, okay, go off to college, and a lot of them are not ready. They're just not used to being independent. When they get to college, they need more help. They're asking adults for more help. Protect me from this, punish him for saying that, protect me from that book. Students are thinking in terms of safety and danger. Students say, by their own admission, they are more fragile they use a language of fragility, weakness, trauma, triggering. They see triggers all over the world. What are triggers? Triggers are cases where you take a part of your nervous system and you say, if someone says that word, they can control my nervous system and make me afraid and anxious. That's a terrible idea. We should not be teaching our kids to, to see the world as being full of triggers. We should teach them to live in a world that is physically quite safe but full of offensive statements and ideas, especially on the internet. The bottom line is that if we want to raise a generation of kids who can deal with diversity of all kinds, who can go out into a world that's physically actually quite safe, but yet full of offensive, offensive content, 
we need to get our educational practices in line with some very basic, important psychological principles. they are we are all prone to motivated reasoning and the confirmation bias and we're all prone to tribalism and black and white thinking we need to be educating kids so that they do less of this stuff always trust your feelings it may sound wise, it may sound romantic but wise people around the world have noticed that, that we don't react to the world as it actually is, we react to the constructions, the, the perceptions. Epictetus said, it is not things themselves that disturb us, but our interpretations of things. All of us have had experiences of these. Uh, one thing I like to think about is Homer Simpson saying, Get up, brain, or I'll stab you with a Q-tip. Our brains do this. Our brains go on and on. We're like, stop it, stop it, stop it. What we've begun seeing on campus is that students are encouraged to, to uh, follow their feelings. If they feel offended by something, then they have been attacked. Um, they're supposed to um, not question those feelings. But part of wisdom is the ability to say, now wait a second, are there other ways to look at this? These are crucial skills for critical thinking. These are crucial skills for mental health. Um, and we need to be teaching young people at all stages to question their first interpretations, look for evidence, and improve the way they interpret the world. CBT is just a way of teaching people skills to do exactly that, to question their feelings, to look for evidence. So in CBT, you learn the names of these distortions, about 15 or so distortions. You can guess what they mean. Catastrophizing, black and white thinking, labeling, mind reading. Aaron Beck, a psychiatrist in the 1960s, noticed that depressed and anxious people have a way of constructing these beliefs that I'm bad, the future is bad, my future, the world is, the world is a bad place, and they're mutually reinforcing. And this is the way the world feels to them. And if you can improve their thinking and break up those beliefs, they're released from the depression. Cognitive behavioral therapy is not more effective than several other treatments. There are, most treatments are about equally effective, but it's so easy to learn. Other techniques like meditation work, but they're harder. Most people drop off. So CBT is easy, really well-tested, has a huge impact on a variety of mental illnesses, especially those related to depression and anxiety. We think every college student, and heck, every high school student, um, should be taught these basic skills, given how high the rates of anxiety and depression are today. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. If you think about it for a moment, who are we? What is our species? We evolved in small-scale societies that were locked in struggle with other small-scale societies. Human nature is really, really finely tailored for intergroup conflict, for tribal warfare. This is the way our ancestors lived for a long time. Now that we've transcended it, we're so desperate for it, we've invented team sports, fraternities. We love these sorts of competitions. Our brains are made for it. Now, it can be fun, or it can get dark, but keep in mind that I've explored this part of it and we're being groomed to do that so our eyes off the ball of how they're robbing and cheating us, right? So sports are their way of manipulating where we spend our time thinking, okay? And also that's why they don't want us, that's why they do want us on social media 24-7 so our own internal thoughts aren't part of our process and uh, it, it can lead to racism, uh, all kinds but of... But yes, them introducing sports into our lives has created all of this tribalism, is what I'm trying to say, is that, yes, I do agree with this, that tribalism is what you look at in a society like in the United States with a two-party system. Talk about tribalism, right? You've got one side against the other side, and then we have different football teams on <laughs> in every city. So, this country was built on tribalism. Raw, raw, USA, raw, raw, USA. It sounds kind of tribalism to me, but I'll say that, yeah. So we're looking at tribalism in just a little tiny bit different way. Uh, all kinds of forms of bigotry. But on some college campuses and in some high schools, we see forms of education, forms of training that teach students to make more and more distinctions, to see more and more binary dimensions between people where the people who are high are bad, the people who are low are good, when we talk about identity politics, which is a controversial topic, we start by saying, of course you need identity politics. 
identity politics is not a bad thing automatically. Politics can be based on any distinction. It can be based on any group interest. So for gay students or black students or women to organize, that's identity politics. That's perfectly legitimate. The question is, how are they organizing? What's the overarching framework? And we've seen two versions of it in American history. You can do it the way most of the civil rights leaders did it, Martin Luther King in particular, where you draw a larger circle around the group, you emphasize what we have in common, and then you say some of our brothers and sisters are being denied equal access, equal opportunity, or equal dignity. That works. That has worked historically in much tougher times and zones, and that works and will work on college campuses. The other way you do it, which is growing on college campuses, is common enemy identity politics. It's based on the Bedouin notion, me against my brother, me and my brother against our cousin, me and my brother and cousin against the stranger. It's a very general principle of social psychology. If you try to unite people, let's all unite against them. They're the bad people. They're the cause of the problems. Let's all stick together. That's a really dangerous thing to do in a multi-ethnic society, especially in a university where we're actually all trying to work together to solve the problem. If we're creating multi-ethnic environments on campuses, and in most of our organizations, we're struggling to increase diversity, what you should obviously be doing is turning down the tribal sentiments, is emphasizing what we have in common. Identity politics done with a common humanity frame is a good thing and is likely to work. Identity politics done by uniting everybody against the people with power and privilege, one race versus another race, one gender versus another gender, this is madness. This is a really bad idea if you're trying to emphasize and increase diversity and inclusion. We call that common enemy identity politics. The more we encourage people to see the people around them as good versus evil, the harder it's going to be to create an, an inclusive, diverse environment. Well, we're being set up to behave in these matters. This has all been manipulated in this little human experiment board. So anyhow, goodbye for now and be safe out there.